0: Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 21 this morning. We've been working our way through our series in the book of Hebrews. And we have kind of broken off now into a small sub-series or mini-series on the person of Melchizedek. Uh, this is our second week discussing Melchizedek. In our three-week series, and so we'll be working through Hebrews chapter seven, verses eleven through twenty-one. This morning, last week we looked at this Melchizedek and what was so prominent about him. The Bible says that he was a great man, and so we looked at what made him such a great man. The Bible says he was king of Salem, that he was the king of peace, king of righteousness. That he was a priest of the Most High God. And that he resembled the Son of God. Those are some pretty uh, amazing traits for this King Melchizedek. We also looked at how we are to read the Bible and how to read it correctly. Um, and I want us to discuss that a little bit again this morning before we get into our text. I believe if we were reading the Bible for the first time, And start at the beginning we would read it different. I believe we would read it a lot different. I believe many of us have been brought up in church and seeing the Bible as a lot of stories, a lot of stories about different people and we kind of compartmentalize a lot of the Bible. But the Bible is really one story and again as we said last week it's about one person and that's being Jesus Christ. So in Genesis, we would see God and Adam and Eve. What God creates all things, and He says, What? It's good. Then He creates Adam and Eve, and He says, Behold, it's very good. Why? Because they are made in His image, made in His likeness. And they were made and they were put in the Garden of Eden, right? And things were perfect. They had a perfect relationship with each other, they had a perfect relationship with God, and they had dominion over the earth. Things were perfect, were great, were amazing. But then what happened? Sin comes into the world, right? Through the eating of the fruit. If we were reading through the Bible for the first time, I think we would get to that point and it would, it would devastate us. <coughs> what happened here? Everything was perfect and now it's not. Adam and Eve had, had Adam and Eve had everything great. Sin comes in. What happens next? God says that later, one will come from Eve who will crush Satan's head, and in doing so, will bruise his heel. Hmm. Who's this person? What is this person like? Then we will see what God kicks him out of the garden. He's gone out of the garden. How will they return? How will they get back to God? Can they get back to Eden? Can they get back to the way things were before sin came into the world? And if so, how? Through this person. And so that's who we should be looking for. Who is this person that will crush Satan's head? Well, as we keep reading, maybe it's Noah, right? Noah's one who, maybe he's one who will crush Satan's head. Noah finds favor with God, right? And God saves him and his family from the flood. But right after that, we see Noah sins. Well, it's not Noah. Why? Because sin is what got them in trouble in the first place. So therefore, if Noah sins, there's no way Noah can be the one to get them back to where they were. So who? So we keep going. Maybe it's Abraham. We come to Abraham. We see God makes a covenant with Abraham. But we see in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, he says it will be an offspring from Abraham. So we keep looking. Then we come to this king and his priest, Melchizedek, right? Some key words should stick out to us if we're reading through it the first time. What he is, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, and he blesses Abraham. Wow, this is huge. Who is this guy? Maybe he's the one. But then he just kind of disappears, right? We don't see deck again. So we keep going. We keep looking. But we need to keep this guy in mind as we're going through scripture. As we keep going, we see God save his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, through this man Moses. But even Moses says what, that God will raise up a prophet like Moses, but this prophet will speak the word of God. So okay, it's not Moses, but there will be another prophet. So now we're looking for a prophet also. So We have more information about this man we're looking for. So we keep going. Next God establishes the Levitical priesthood. God tells Moses how to instruct the priests concerning sacrifices, concerning offerings, concerning worship. Why? Because God is holy, therefore his people must be holy. But the thing is, we should notice these priests continually have to offer up sacrifices First for themselves and then for others. Over and over and over again. And these priests die. And the thing is we don't see anything else about this other priest, Melchizedek. Until we get to Psalm 110. As we spoke of last week. And as we're going to look at again today. Psalm 110, he shows up again. This time he shows up in a promise from God. That this Messiah, this prophet, this king, this priest that we're looking for... That we will be priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he will be a priest forever. And he is a priest with a promise, an oath. From here now we keep going looking for this priest. But after that we also see God will establish a kingdom in Israel. And it's a pretty mighty kingdom. There's peace in the land. King David is a very good king. Maybe he's the one. But then what does King David do? He sins. He sins mightily. He commits adultery. And he commits murder. So we know it's not King David. But we also see God make a covenant with David that that the kingdom will be, there will be a king on the throne forever that comes from King David. So that's who we're looking for. So maybe it's one of King David's sons. But as we keep reading, we see they're sinful also, right? They fall into sin so it can't be them. So we keep looking. And then we come to the Gospels. And we come to the Gospels. We see this weird-dressed guy who eats crazy food named John. And what does he start saying? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's right here. This guy. That should get our attention really quick. So the one we've been looking for, this Guy John is saying, hey, it's him right here, the Lamb of God. And then what does this guy start preaching? He said, the time is fulfilled. What the time is fulfilled? What what we've been looking for. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This should also grab our attention. Is this the one we've been looking for? Then we come to the author of Hebrews, and the Hebrews is writing... And he is telling us that this guy also comes from the line of Melchizedek. He said, this is the one we've been looking for. This is him. So to read scripture, we should be looking for that one who will take away the sins of the world. Let's read our text this morning. We'll dig in. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 21. I will read aloud if you will read along quietly. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath By the one who said to him The Lord has sworn And will not change his mind You are a priest forever Father thank you again so much for your word Thank you again that we get to gather on this Lord's day And we get to worship you Lord and we Get to hear from you Lord speak to us through your word this morning Lord change us from the inside out Lord, give us a heart of flesh, a heart that loves you, a heart that longs for you, a heart that seeks to obey you in all that we do. Lord, again, you're amazing. Lord, there's no way we could have done anything to get back to you. There's no way we could have done anything on our own to cleanse our sinful ways. So, Lord, you had to come and do it for us. And, Lord, we thank you for that. Show us more of that, show us more of your gospel this morning through your word. Show us more of who you are, how great you are, how amazing you are. Again, speak to us, Lord, I pray that it will be all honoring and glorifying to you, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want us to answer one question. It's the question the author of Hebrews says in verse 11. This is one question we need to answer. He says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to ri- arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? It's a good question. It's an important question. It's a question we need to answer. Right now, I want to answer it in six Ways or six reasons why Jesus is a better high priest who comes from the order of Melchizedek but first I want us to answer the question of what is a priest what does a priest do and why is it important why are we talking about priests Okay, in the Old Testament a priest was a, a go between or an intercessor between man and God Okay, such a person was necessary, why? Because God is holy and we're not. God is perfect and we're sinful. So we needed someone to represent us to God. And the priests played that role. They offered up the sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. They would offer a sacrifice to make atonement for sin. They would would sacrifice an animal, they would take that blood, and they would would throw it on the altar to cover the sins of the people. That's a priest. So why do we have another priest arise after the order of Melchizedek? There are six reasons I want us to discuss this morning on why we needed another priest. And reason number one is Jesus was from a better tribe. Okay, verses 13 through 15 says for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek I guess a lot of us might ask the question why does it even matter What's it matter what, what tribe he comes from What's the big deal? Well, in the Old Testament, it is a big deal. Can the Old Testament, as we said, if we're reading through Scripture and we're looking for this, the one, the Messiah, the king, the priest, it is a big deal. He must come, the king would come from the line of Judah, which is Abraham's line, who's David's line, as we talked about going through. The king comes from the line of Judah. That's the, the line of the kings. Remember when we talked about that last week, Jesus being the king of kings. He is the true king to come, to come, the king of peace. And that, tribe come, I mean, and that king will come from the tribe of, tribe of Judah. That is the tribe the king had to come from. Okay, You see that back in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. But Jesus also rises after the order of Melchizedek. He is from his priesthood, not Aaron's. And why is this important? Because it was prophesied in Zechariah that there one day would be a priest who sat on the throne as king. Jesus is our high priest, who is also our king. He holds both offices, and I would say he holds both offices perfectly. He comes from the line of Judah, but he also comes from the order of Melchizedek. He cannot only save us as priest, but he also can take care of us and protect us as king. He is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Okay, number two, Jesus' priesthood attains perfection. Okay, and again, back to verse 11. Why would he be asking the question, if if the Aaron's priesthood attained perfection, but it doesn't, right, the Levitical priesthood was unable to attain perfection, that is why there was another priest that arose after the order of Melchizedek, the old priesthood was totally unable to cleanse people from their sins, if they could not really cleanse people from their sins, then the priesthood could not really make anyone fit for heaven, we could not come into the presence of God through the Levitical priesthood. Think about it. If I was just some guy in Israel, okay, living my life in Israel, the Sabbath day come up, and I needed food for me and my family, and I would go out, and i kill some chickens, and i clean them, and i cook them, and our family eats them. What did I do? Broke the Sabbath, right? Wasn't allowed to do that. So then my mom and dad came over and said, hey, well, I, th- I th- thought I saw you over there killing chickens on the Sabbath and eating them. What happened? And then I tell my parents, I didn't do that. You must have been seeing things. I didn't do that. Now what have I done? Now I've not honored my father and mother. So now I've broken two commandments. Okay, and, then, and then you just keep going down. So then I didn't honor God because I didn't honor my father and mother. I lied. I committed another sin. Now I'm headed down a pretty rough road. So now my conscience gets me. I know I've sinned against God. I need to be cleansed of my sin because I've broken the law. So then what I would do, I would go to the priest and I would bring a sacrifice, an offering, and I would bring it to him. But he would have to take it. What? He would have to go in and offer a sacrifice for himself first to make sure his sins are cleansed. And then he would go and offer a sacrifice for me. I might walk away and say well I hope that worked and don't forget about this word hope because we're going to go back to it later I might walk away and say I hope that worked I might say well I hope that priest really offered up a sacrifice for himself first I might even ask questions I might say well I hope he was totally clean before he offered up a sacrifice for me because if he wasn't totally clean before he offered up a sacrifice for me then my sins are still on me I hope he wasn't still in his sins when he tried to make atonement for my sins. Then I would have to think, well, I hope the animal I brought was good enough. I hope that animal was spotless and perfect. I got the best one I could find. I hope he worked. What if he just went through the motions? What if the priest just goes through the motions? Think about this. Think about you do all that, and the next day that priest dies. Then I'll think, well, if he's dead, maybe his his sacrifice wasn't good. Maybe God took him out because he went to offer a sacrifice for himself and then for me, and maybe it didn't work out for him, so God took him out. Now, am I still in my sins? I don't know. I hope I'm not, but I'm not sure. Then on the flip side of that coin, I have another problem. What if I sin again? Is that sin covered? I don't think so. Now do I need to go do it again? Do I need to go make an offering again? Did that offering work. So I go through the whole process again. And personally, I would have to be going through this process constantly. I might as well just stay at the temple and just keep getting an animal and keep having it killed and keep sacrificing the blood and keep throwing the blood on the altar because, you know what? As soon as I walk away, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to sin again. And I would still worry if I'm in my sins. I would still worry if I'm separated from God. And that would be exhausting. I want us to see that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant structure or infrastructure was totally inadequate and really temporary. The purpose for it was to point us forward to the new covenant and to the perfect high priest who could achieve redemption for us, and that's Jesus. Because I would walk away saying, I need something else. This is not getting it done. I need something better. I need something more. I am still not sure if my sins are forgiven when I go do this. I believe also we can understand the gospel more clearly when we understand the old covenant and its ceremonies. And what the Levitical priest had to offer for the forgiveness of sins. So reading through the Old Testament we can see what God really had to do in order to save us. We can truly see what Jesus accomplished in order to save us. He gave his life as a sacrifice for many. What for God so loved the world that he... Gave us his only begotten Son, but whoever believes in Him should not have should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He is the perfect sacrifice. It is only through his shed blood that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. It is the only way we're truly fit for heaven. It's the only way we're truly made perfect. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to receive eternal life. Jesus' priesthood is the only way to attain perfection. And number three, Jesus' priesthood is forever. It's forever, verses 15 through 17. Again, he says, this becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life for it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which priest would you rather have representing you? One in which the priest dies and always have to be replaced? Or one in which you have An intercessor that lives forever to represent you. This change is huge. It's monumental. I don't think when we study this we understand how big of a change this truly is. This new priest after the order of Melchizedek never dies. That's when we saw last week when the author of Hebrews was talking about Mechizedek, saying he had no what? no beginning of life, no end of days. He's pointing us truly to the one who truly has no end of life or beginning of days. Jesus Christ, who is God, who's been forever. He's always been. So it's pointing, pointing us forward to Jesus, the high priest who fulfills this role and truly never has the beginning of days or end of life. God has made a point here when he told us this about Melchizedek, and the point was to keep looking for the one who would fulfill this role forever. And who does have an indestructible life? Jesus, right? The grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead. Is that not amazing? I mean, I think as Christians, we often think, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Cool. No, he rose from the dead. Psalm 110 promised that a new priesthood was coming in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is forever. We don't have to look for another priest. We don't have to worry about our priest being a priest who was just a priest because of his family. We don't have to worry about our priest dying. He already died and rose from the dead. He's already defeated death. His priesthood is forever. These are facts. This is not just some concept or some construct, right? It's not just some mystical religion. This is not just some philosophy that we just think about. It's not just a thought. This is as true as you and I sitting here today. It is a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And that changes everything. It's not just something we can take or leave. He rose from the dead. Again, I can't say that enough because I don't think it has the weight on us that it should. Our Savior rose from the dead. Number four, this change in the priesthood, again, like I said earlier, changes everything. Verse 12 and then 18 and 19. Verse 12 he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. In 18, On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This change in the priesthood changes everything. It changes the law as well. The law the author is speaking of here is a ceremonial law. Okay, so now there's no more animal sacrifices being offered up for the sins of the priests. And then more animal sacrifices being offered up for the people. But now because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for many, while we were still sinners, Christ dying for us, we now are living sacrifices to God, which is our spiritual worship. We'll get get into a little bit of application here. There's no more sacrifices. You know what the sacrifice is now? Us. We are called to be living sacrifices to God. You want to worship God truly? Be a living sacrifice. That is what scripture calls us to do. Deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Christ. that's a living sacrifice this is this is a response to salvation and those are hard words for us we're so very self-centered today we live our lives for me I am my own God and guess what if you're not doing your job to make me happy and to give me what I want then guess what you're out because you're not doing what makes me happy we make everything about ourselves we use people to get things instead of using things to help people more application husbands if you want to love your wife love your wife wife as Christ loved the church many husbands here I bet most husbands here will say they would die for their wife they would take a bullet for their wife but that's not what Paul is talking about He's saying, give yourself up for your wife. Live for your wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's more to it than just giving your life. It's living now your life for your wife. It's serving her. But Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. Husbands, give your life for your wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, that's sacrificial living, being daily sacrifices for the Lord. Outdo one another in showing honor and goodness. Okay. Also, there's no more ceremonial washings. Jesus says, "What well, the filth is on the inside, not the outside. You can clean your outside up all you want, and it's not going to do any good. The religious leaders had it all wrong. Jesus says what evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they are what defile a person. Therefore we need his sacrificial blood to cleanse us of our sins, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Taking some animal and throwing the blood on the altar is not going to do any good. We need to be cleansed internally. There's no more law stating the requirement of the circumcision of the flesh. Now it's a circumcision of the heart. There's no more law saying that we need to travel to a temple for worship. Jesus is our place of worship. Jesus says in Matthew 12, that what something greater than the temple is here. And what what was he talking about? He was talking about himself. All these things change. This is a huge thing. Now put yourself in the original hearers' shoes or sandals. Put yourself in their sandals. This changes everything. This changes lives. Imagine these people growing up and only knowing the temple sacrifices. Only knowing that the only way to God is through this animal sacrifice. Going to the temple, offering up your sacrifice. This is all they knew. Now, this man is telling me that all this has changed. He's saying all this stuff that you used to do is fulfilled in one man. All this stuff is just pointing to this one man. Now it's all fulfilled in him. And for me, I think I would say that sounds ridiculous. What are you talking about? It's all fulfilled in this one man. But it's true. All those things were here to point us to Christ, was point, to point us to Jesus. Now, maybe some of us are in the same boat. We come to church because that's what we've all known. It's what we've ever known. We're raised up in a church. We do this because that's what we've been taught. We go through the motions because it's just what we do. We think that we need, to, we need to do something in order to get right with God. I know some people who have been baptized over and over and over again. Five, six, seven times. Why? Because they think they have to do something to get to God. So they have to do that. So I walk away. I still keep living the same sinful lifestyle I've always lived. So something didn't work. So I've got to go back and I've got to do it again. So I go back to church and what do they say I need to do? Well, you need to be baptized. Well, I've been baptized. Well, obviously you didn't really mean it. You've got to do it again. So then you do it again, and then guess what? You walk away, and that same sin still has a hold of you, and it still grips you, and it still messes with you. Then what do you do? I've got to do something else. I've got to do something to get right with God. But guess what? It doesn't save you. Saying some prayer doesn't save you. Walking down an aisle doesn't save you, but we always think we have to do something to get right with God. Doing those things is just like offering up up a sacrifice for sin. Doing those things is just like bringing your sacrifice to the priest to cover your sin and walking away and sinning again and knowing it didn't work. Why? Because it doesn't change the heart. We need to work much bigger and much stronger and much more powerful than that. We need a miracle. Nothing we can do can get us back to the garden. We can't get back there. There's angels there blocking us. We can't go in, right? Nothing we do can make us right for heaven. Nothing we can do can right our wrongs. Nothing. That is why God came down to us in order to save us. He came on a rescue mission to save us from our sins. He does it all. But in all to Him we owe. He changes our hearts. He takes out of our heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh and He, he cleanses us of our sins. And in that new heart, we love him, and we cherish him, and we live for him. And in doing that, he gives us faith. That's why I love the solace, because it shows us that we can't do anything. It's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, from the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. We are just recipients of this amazing grace. Again, put yourself in their shoes. This changes everything. I think it changes a lot of things for us who grew up in in churches. Number five, this priesthood from the line of Melchizedek brings us true hope. Verses 18 and 19, we talked about hope earlier. Remember that. He says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The former commandment or law or covenant is set aside. Why? Because it's weak and useless. Why is it weak and useless? We just talked about it. It can't get us there. You can 't make anything or anyone perfect. ceremonies could never do it. They could never actually draw us near to God again, we could go and as I said earlier, we could make our, our sacrifice, we could offer it up. the priest could take it, he could offer a sacrifice for himself, he could throw the blood on the altar, he could take ours, he could offer it throw it on the altar for us and then we can walk away we can walk away thinking our sins have been forgiven and cleansed but does it do we really feel closer to God does it make us feel closer to him does it draw us near to God no but what it could do is show us that we truly need a savior but through Jesus we have a better hope through which we can draw near to God this better hope is truly amazing. And what's the better hope that's introduced here? Our hope is better because the object of our hope is better. Okay, i't say that again. Our hope is better now because the object of our hope is better. We are not trusting in something better. We are trusting something better than the Levitical priests. We're trust- trusting in something better than the sacrificing of an animal cleanse us of all of our sins. We are now putting our hope in Jesus. He is the priest that offered up himself to be sacrificed for sinners. He is the perfect priest and perfect sacrifice. We don't have to worry about our priest. Is he clean? We're going to talk about that more next week. Was he just going through the motions? Was he a wicked priest that did what was right in his own eyes? We don't have to worry about the animal being sacrificed. Was he clean? Was he spotless? Was he a perfect sacrifice? Our hope is found in Jesus. But our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, both. We are trusting in Jesus who allows us to really draw near to God something the old covenant again couldn't do Romans 5 8-11 says but God shows his love for us and while and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have hope because of what Christ has done for us. The Puritan theologian Jeremiah Burroughs says that The object of our hope is Jesus Christ, the appearing of Jesus Christ, seeing him, being made like him, and enjoying eternal communion with him. Again, this hope is not a, well, I hope that worked out. It's not that kind of hope like we had with the Old Testament priest and the the sacrifices. Burroughs continues describing Christian hope and saying that it is a grace wrought in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit whereby the soul quietly waits for and expects the future good that God has promised in the covenant of grace though there be, may be many difficulties in the way to hinder the accomplishment of it there's a lot of things we're going to go through here on this earth there's a lot of things that's going to look like it's going to hinder us from coming into the presence of Christ but it's not Mom, because we expect to Jesus to accomplish what he promises to accomplish. This is the hope we have. We have hope now in a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. And then, number six, Jesus' priesthood is also better and more hopeful because, because it is sealed with an oath. In verses 20 and 21, it says, It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind you are a priest forever there was never a promise in the old priesthood God never promised to Aaron that he would be a priest forever we know that because Aaron died, we know that because his sons died he never said I swear the earthly temple system and sacrifices will be the way to me forever God never said that. But he did say that with Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is again going back to Psalm 110 as he is, he's preaching this psalm. He's expounding on this psalm. He's showing us what this psalm, this psalm is pointing to. And he goes back to Psalm 10 and 110, and he quotes it again, showing that God has truly sworn that this priest that comes after the order of Melchizedek will be a priest forever. God has sworn it. Think about that. God has made a promise. And that promise is Jesus will be a priest forever. God never breaks his promises. But even here he swears an oath. He's given us an extra degree of assurance. He's not just promising, he's swearing an oath here. Jesus will always be your high priest. God is not changing his mind. He will not, for some reason, go back to the old earthly priesthood. Jesus has fulfilled that in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. There's no going back. Okay, hear me here. There's no going back. God will not one day build a new temple for us to go to and worship. Some may say that, but... Jesus has fulfilled that. There is no going back. He's not going to build a new altar for sacrifices. Jesus has accomplished that. And Jesus will never back out. He will always be there interceding for us. And I can't remember who said it. Maybe Spurgeon said, how would your life Be lived out if you knew that Jesus was in the other room praying for you daily. Because that is what he does for us. He prays for us constantly. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Who else in the whole world could ever be that kind of savior? No one. The old sacrificial system could never draw us close to God. But through the shed blood of Jesus, we, ha- we can have a true, loving relationship with God. As we saw in Romans, because he loved us, because of his love for us, he sent his son to rescue us, to save us, to draw us into a relationship with him. Not from a distance, but up close and personal. How close and personal? If we are in Christ, if we are a Christian... God the Holy Spirit lives in you, that's how close and personal. He's not a God far off. Through Christ, through Jesus, God is our Father. He is our perfect Father. He is our Holy Father. He is our Heavenly Father. He is our loving Father. He is near. He is in us and He is with us. We are all now royal priesthoods, a holy nation, a people set apart for His own possession. Just think about this. It's a, it's a breathtaking picture for me. God saying, Hey, I know Kevin. I know him. He's my son, and I love him very much. Think about that. If someone asked God the Father that about you, would he answer the same way? Would he say the same thing about you? Are you trusting Jesus? as your high priest and sacrifice for sin if you are then you know that he does he loves you he cares for you the Holy Spirit lives in you he's for you he's not against you if you do you you can know him but more importantly he knows you trust Jesus cry out to God for salvation If he has saved you, then trust him daily. Know that he intercedes for you. Know that he forgives you for your sins. Know that you can run to him as a son has sinned against his father and ask for forgiveness. And he is lovingly welcoming and he will take you and he will forgive you for your sin. Run to him daily. Trust him. Trust that he is near. Trust that he is your loving father and that he deeply cares for you. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that you are loving, Father. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sins. You could have. But thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us, to cleanse us of our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And not just to cleanse us, but to draw us near to you. That we, we may have this relationship with you. That we may know you and that you know us. Lord, thank you that you sent your son on a rescue mission to save us. And thank you that you have given us scripture to point to him. So Lord, I ask that we leave here, not as we came. That your Holy Spirit will change us. And we will draw us near to you. That we will truly be better husbands, that we will be better wives, that we will be better children, that we will honor you, that we will bring glory to you in all that we think, all that we do, all that we say, and all that we feel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We begin to respond to this word that was preached to us.